Hello and welcome to the 22nd episode of the CCGI podcast. Last week we interviewed Dr. Henry Candelaria and discussed his work in a hospital setting and the Isaac program. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jessica Wong. Let's introduce today's guest. Dr. Jessica Wong holds a Bachelor of Science in Medical Radiation Sciences from the University of Toronto, a Doctor of Chiropractic from the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, and a Master of Public Health in Epidemiology from the University of Toronto. Jessica also completed the Graduate Program in Clinical Sciences at CMCC and became a Fellow of the College of Chiropractic Sciences. Jessica is currently completing a doctoral degree in epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the U of T. Her doctoral work investigates the relationship between low back pain and mental health symptoms on healthcare utilization in Ontario. Jessica, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it really is a you know pleasure to have you on the show, and we'd love to just get into it and start asking you questions because there's so much to, to talk about, if you don't mind. That, that sounds great. Um, well, so I, I often associate your name with, with the Optima Collaboration Guidelines, uh, just due to the, the, the quality and the volume of publications uh, that are put out from, from the group. And in particular, you've published several papers on the topic of neck pain and whiplash. And so, and so you know, the first question would be really, why are guidelines important for clinicians and why are they important for patients? First off, I do want to say it was a great team to work with for the Optima Collaboration and the focus of the guidelines really are to help guide clinicians and patients. Uh, so clinical practice guidelines, particularly evidence-based ones, are there to inform the clinical decision-making process between patients and clinicians, the ones that, those important decisions that we make every day in our offices. And for those who are not as familiar with how guidelines are developed, there is a systematic process in developing these key recommendations. And these key recommendations are based on systematically reviewing all of the evidence on the topic. And these topics are then reviewed by a multidisciplinary guideline expert panel to really bridge that gap between research and practice and really develop those key recommendations that can be used clinically and helps guide that decision-making process because we really want to come to an informed decision uh, when coming to assessment or treatment for patients, and in this case, for those with uh, neck pain and whiplash. So understanding where they come from for the guidelines, it's important to understand also how they tie directly to two key principles in healthcare and in chiropractic care, and that's the evidence-based medicine, and the patient-centered care. So the guidelines can help us address one of those key principles of evidence-based medicine in providing the best available evidence, really what we understand and know about the best options for the patients, and marry that with the patient's values and preferences and with our own clinical judgment. And this also ties in with the patient-centered care because then it allows that clinical decision to really be with two peers, with really the patient and the clinician and whomever else is involved in that uh, circle of care. Uh, so some examples from the guidelines you'll often see is, for instance, care pathways that walk you through the decision-making process based on the evidence. And it also walks you through some decisions and factors to consider when you're discussing 
the patient's condition and available treatment options. So ultimately, I would say the guidelines really help bridge that research practice gap and really help us make decisions in a patient-centered manner and in an evidence-based one. That's fantastic. I mean, that's... And that's very in line with, with what we're doing at the CCGI as well. And, and one of the, the, the challenges that you mentioned in barriers is bridging that research practice gap. And, and guidelines inherently are quite uh, long <laughs> for, for clinicians to, to read and understand. And, and so how do you suggest clinicians stay up to date with uh, evidence-based management of, for instance, neck pain and, and whiplash-associated disorders? What, what can they do to, to keep up to date? That's a very good question, and a question that I also was faced with a lot in practice, and particularly before I went into more so the guideline development and some of the um, research, other research projects. As we understand, there's a large body of evidence with new publications all the time, and the quality of research also varies. And so I would actually go back to the evidence-based clinical practice guideline as a good way for clinicians to stay up to date. And how we tried to bridge that gap, as an example, with the Optima collaboration was we created a lot of documents that are titled quick reference guides or examples of exercises for patients, really short snapshots of the evidence and of the recommendations that clinicians can then print off and use in their clinical practice. So I would I would see in a certain area if there is an evidence-based clinical practice guideline available. Um, that would be uh, my first step. And if not available, I would then consider systematic reviews that are high quality in the area. And that's because the reviews do the job of evaluating individual studies and really combining or synthesizing the evidence for you. So instead of the clinicians having to go to each study and find out what they found and compare and contrast the results with other studies, the systematic reviews really do that for you. Um, Now, the guidelines take the extra step of then developing recommendations to really bring it even closer to practice. But again, I understand that some topics are don't have those, these guidelines available, in which case the systematic reviews would be very helpful. Um, there are some strategies that we've used, particularly at CMCC, to try and bridge this gap further and help clinicians along. So an example would be that we have faculty development workshops with clinicians to review guidelines and to review systematic reviews that they can then use in their practice and as well with interns at the chiropractic college. Uh, But for those who are not directly involved at CMCC, we also have continuing education workshops to really try to facilitate this gap in knowledge translation. And these are examples of, again, reviewing guidelines and particularly systematic reviews to uh, provide additional opportunities to stay up to date to the evidence. So I would say overall, uh, look into clinical practice guidelines, number one. If not available, look at systematic reviews and then also opportunities to review the evidence in a guided manner. So that may be uh, uh, workshops or continuing education sessions available uh, to you. Oh, that's uh, that's great. I think that'll that'll be really helpful for our, our listeners, Jessica. Um, two of your more recent publications came from the World Federation of Chiropractic and the Global Spine Care Initiative. 
what to, what role do you think chiropractors play in public health and health promotion on a on a larger global more global scale? I think there are many levels to the potential involvement of chiropractors in public health and in health promotion. And I would say this does stem locally, nationally, as well as globally. Um, one of the first steps would be to really understand the importance of public health across all the sectors, including healthcare and in, including chiropractic. Uh, so just recently in the past few years, there is a um, newer public health course at CNCC that really is able to educate the current students on what public health is and um, how they can be involved, but really understanding that public health is promoting health through organized efforts of society. It's really at the population level across multiple sectors. And individually as chiropractors, we can initiate these activities within our own communities, including educational talks, strategies to promote physical activity and healthy diet as examples. But I think it's important to recognize that public health is also couched beyond the individual to these organized efforts at a population level. So some ways to participate in this is to promote and participate in consistent efforts across the globe within the chiropractic profession. And this speaks to the work of the World Federation of Chiropractic and the Global Spine Care Initiative. Uh, so an example would be that the WFC has supported Quite a few initiatives from the World Health Organization over the years and being a, a participant in promoting those activities would be helpful so such as World Spine Day, um, part of the Bone and Joint Decades Action Week. But the WFC has tried to take this further with the Public Health Committee by developing toolkits and these are toolkits in three key areas right now of um, healthy aging, opioid misuse, and supporting women's, children's, and adolescents' health. And these toolkits uh, will be available soon on the World Federation of Chiropractic website, in which case these toolkits can then be downloaded and used by chiropractors globally. So I think that's a very important level to speak to. Uh, but I do also want to mention the larger picture that it's important to consider taking the an evidence-based approach to population health and policy making and recognizing that we actually do need more research in understanding what would be effective initiatives in promoting public health related to musculoskeletal conditions, including back and neck pain. So I think for researchers, um, it's important for us to think about now assessing approaches that address risk factors, prognostic factors, including social policies, um, strategies related to health promotion, and really trying to shift, almost shift the distribution of neck pain and back pain as examples so that it is less severe and is associated with lower disability. So I think this is a, a research area that Needs more work, uh, but that's that's very promising because we've had a lot done already, and uh, to continue working on these on these various areas. So I think overall, uh, we have a lot to do, and we can make meaningful contributions to public health. And this would occur across the various levels um, in clinical, academic, as well as research settings. Yeah, not not an easy task to tackle. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, know, you know, obviously different, you know. Uh, different people's cultural backgrounds where, you know, developing or develop 
country as well. I mean, there, there's so many different factors to consider. So you'll have a lot of work ahead of you, I think, <laughs> in years to come. Yes, we will. We will all, as a team, uh, take <laughs> on this, this uh, challenge. Yeah. Uh, so the the next question I have is is a paper that was that uh, you're an author on that um, interested me quite a bit. It, it, it was um, a publication last year in the European Spine Journal, which discussed reliability and validity of clinical tests to assess the anatomical integrity of the cervical spine in adults with neck pain and, uh, and its associated disorders. That's the title. And, and the exciting thing is I read it and I heard names that I recognize as a clinician. I heard Sperling's and upper limb tension tests. And, and, um, and so what information can you share with clinicians uh, when conducting physical examinations on patients with neck pain? Well, interestingly, we found limited evidence to support the use of specific clinical tests um, to evaluate the cervical spine and its anatomical integrity. And actually, most of the evidence is preliminary. And so there were a few tests that we were able to um, highlight based on preliminary evidence. Um, and there's a list in the publication, but just briefly, it, it includes the extension rotation test, um, neurological examination, Sperling's test, and upper limb neurodynamic tests. But more importantly, because this is preliminary evidence, uh, the current evidence suggests that we, as clinicians, importantly need to conduct a thorough history um, to ensure that we've investigated all red flags um, to rule out any major or serious pathology, um, ensuring that there are no pathologies such as fractures, infections, dislocations, malignancies that's causing the neck pain. That's the first key step. And from there, um, depending on if the patient had trauma, uh, we also did find some consistent evidence regarding the clinical prediction rules called the Canadian C-spine rules to determine whether we should do imaging. Um, that's actually in a, a different manuscript, but it's tied in with uh, this collaboration. And so that would be very helpful in, in informing whether imaging is needed when trauma has taken place with uh, those suffering from neck pain. But I would say the, the key message here is, is that a lot of our clinical tests that we've conducted over the years are based on preliminary evidence, and we should keep that in mind. And that the first step really is to rule out the red flags and rule out serious pathology. And with trauma, we may or may not need to use imaging, and that can be guided by the Canadian C-spine rules. And um, for the clinical tests that actually do not have established validity and reliability, uh, which are key properties that we use to measure tests, um, we should not be relying on them in clinical practice. Uh, so that's also another key message. In light of all this, further research is needed in this area. And I think it's very important that we've now established that with the systematic review. Well, that's uh, that's great, Jessica. Uh, and speaking of further research, um, what's, what, what are you working on right now? Well, I am, so I just finished my first year of a uh, PhD program. So I'm most of, mostly focusing on my research thesis at the moment. And a, the doctoral thesis involves three main objectives, but really the, the main aim of the project now is to examine the relationship between 
mental health symptoms and low back pain on healthcare utilization in Ontario. Uh, so we know that you know low back pain is a common common reason for visiting healthcare providers, and we know that mental health symptoms are strong negative prognostic factors uh, for the condition. Uh, we also know that some people do very well with minimal care. Um, and they may have recurrent episodes, but they are able to self-manage or just seek a little bit of care to manage their symptoms. And we also know that some people suffer from chronic low back pain and disability. So it's actually, we're finding more that it's actually these subgroups or higher risk subgroups that are really requiring a lot of the health care and uh, driving actually a lot of the costs. So this is something that I want to take a look into further. Um, I have an opportunity to uh, link some health administrative data in Ontario to um, Canadian population health surveys to establish more of a population-based group of those with low back pain. And I would like to then see their patterns of healthcare utilization in Ontario and whether these patterns really differ among those with comorbid mental health symptoms, such as depression, anxiety, stress, uh, compared to those without the mental health symptoms. Uh, so that's something that I'll be doing over the next uh, few years. And to do this, I will be working at the uh, Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences, which is where the data is held for these health administrative databases. Um, and this is through um, work with my supervisor. Uh, she's, her name is Dr. Laura Rosella at the University of Toronto, who's an epidemiologist and methodologist, as well as my committee members, uh, Dr. Pierre Cote, who's um, a Canada Research Chair in Disability Prevention and Rehabilitation at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, and as well with uh, Dr. Andrea Trico, who is in Knowledge Translation and uh, Canada Research Chair at the St. Michael's Hospital. So I have an excellent support team and a mentorship from them uh, to work on this project over the next few years. And so I do look forward to hopefully sharing some more results later on as I complete these projects and really inform our understanding of mental health symptoms and how they relate to low back pain and how they are informing healthcare use in Ontario and potentially beyond. Well, that's fantastic. You're going to have your work cut out for you over the next few years, it sounds like. You know, certainly it sounds as though, even with the last question we, ha we asked you, you know, that, that history taking is so crucial and even identifying mental health concerns and psychosocial barriers will, will prove quite useful. So it's great to see to hear about more research coming to light on, on that topic. Yes, the, yes, the importance of understanding the red flags, the yellow flags, um, and then now really conducting more research to fill those knowledge gaps and ultimately uh, improve health outcomes for our patients and provide uh, more information to our clinicians, to other stakeholders, decision makers. Um, I would like to at least help contribute to that. Well, that's that's wonderful. Um, we, we really, you know, we really want to thank you for taking the time and, and coming on the show today, Jessica. It, it really is a pleasure uh, to have you with us today, and and we really want to encourage our listeners to review the publications that we discussed today. We'll 
we'll, we'll provide the links for them on on the CCGI website and through our, our Facebook group so that people can can easily access those. And and uh, I've, I've been able to find quite a few of your publications on, on research ResearchGate, which is a great way to, to, to view uh, full text articles. Um, and uh, and uh, so we'll have that up uh, quite soon. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for joining us, Jessica. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And we'll look forward to bringing you our next guest in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.